Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The Partially Examined Life depends on your support. To find out how to do that in ways that are cheap or even free, go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 185 is something like, what is heroism, or what does the Homeric ethic of hospitality have to teach us about ethics, or maybe, can you really ever go home again? And we read the 2018 translation of Homer's Odyssey by Emily Wilson, the original being composed probably somewhere around the 7th century BC. For more information, please check out partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, arriving early with rosy fingers in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Wes Alwyn, away from home in New Orleans, Louisiana. This is Dylan Casey, sitting as a lion after eating a grazing ox with chest and jowls thick with blood in Middleton, Wisconsin. This is Emily Wilson, sitting not at my loom, but at my computer in rainy Philadelphia. <laughs> I think you're the first guest to ever impromptu make that kind of introduction, Emily. <laughs> well, welcome, Emily. We're tickled pink to have you on here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I've been highly enjoying your version of the Odyssey. It is, as you point out, we kind of associate it's classical literature, so it should sound stilted. It should sound formal. It should sound like Shakespeare or something is kind of what we think. But no, this is so classical. It is so far from Shakespeare. So there's no point in having a translation sound archaic. You might as well have it sound modern because that's equally distant from the original as the archaic versions that we're sort of used to. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think, I guess I was more wanting to avoid thinking that all English epic has to sound a little bit like Milton or a little bit like <laughs> This is nothing like the way that the Greek sounds. The Greek is based on a folk tradition and it's folk poetry designed to be performed orally. And it's also a poem that the ancient classical and archaic Greeks really loved hearing. So I think the, the idea that this pleasurable, enjoyable poem in very clear, simple syntax should be converted into ugly, stilted, foreignizing or archaizing or bombastic English is definitely something we should question. I read that you, besides putting it in verse, read it aloud to yourself to make sure it sounded right to you. Is there a way in which it sounds different to you in reading the Greek and you're trying to make it have that feel in English? Obviously, it can't exactly, right? Or maybe thinking about that bombastic way of translating it to give it a lot of sort of classic flavor that would make it sound important in one way. And then what you just described is having it be a more everyday kind of language that people would have enjoyed listening to contemporaneously. I'm wondering if there are differences in the way that sounds to you in reading it out loud in English versus reading it in Greek. It sounds completely different. One thing that I just knew from the start is the translation is never going to be the same as the original. And that's true of mine and it's true of all translations. The original is in a different meter, a dactylic hexameter, whereas mine is in iambic pentameter. So I wanted to have a meter, but to have a meter that was native to English and would sound natural in English, as opposed to the meter that sounded natural in archaic Greece. And of course, there was no way that I could make it sound anything like the original. It's alike in that I'm trying to 
irresponsible about whatever element in the original I felt I could recreate in a totally different cultural context and literary context. But that's not the same as saying it sounds the same. It certainly doesn't sound the same. Did you intend the meter to come through? As I was going through this, I was kind of thinking like, if I was going to make an audiobook of this, what would it sound like? And would I try to make the meter obvious? And just, yeah. you know, so just picking a random passage here, the crowd broke up, the Ithacans went home, the suitors to Odysseus's house. Telemachus slipped out and at the beach, he dipped his hands in salty grewa. So the way I was just reading it right there is not the crowd broke up, the Ithacans went home, the suitors to, like to actually do it. So it sounds like it has that every other syllable accent would sound very weird and stilted. It would, but this applies to any long bit of iambic pentameter verse that you might read, including Milton or Shakespeare as well as me. I would, I would never read any verse like that. It would, totally destroys it. I mean, I could hear the rhythm in the first way you read as well. It's not that it's not there. If you don't over-exaggerate it, you can mm-hmm. still hear it. It's still totally audible, as far as I can tell. I feel like there's partly because so few people spend a lot of time reading iambic pentameter or reading any metrical verse, it can be hard for people to get their ears in. And I think there can be a way that people think If it's not artificial and showing off, then it's not poetry. But that's obviously a very, very particular idea about what poetry is, which it doesn't fit most of world literature. And it doesn't also fit most of Anglophone poetry. Most of Anglophone poetry, if not all pompous, stilted stuff. (laughs) A lot lot of Shakespeare is actually not like that, that either. Is this a dagger that I see before me? I am afraid to think what I have done. Those are Shakespearean lines, and they scan perfectly well. Sure. And I don't have to say, I am afraid to think what I have done. In order to- <laughs> it's crazy. No, so of course, we're certainly familiar with Shakespearean performances like that and how they don't follow that. But the way you described the original storytellers, and again, I'm kind of projecting on this. I just re-listened to our uh, Nietzsche's Birth of Tragedy episode where he's describing the song-like chants of you know Homeric and even the poetry that, I'm not sure if it came, Ar- Archilochus? Like, was that right before Homer or after Homer? Philicus, uh, the iambic lyric poet, after Homer, but yes. I mean, there were, there were plenty of lyric poets who were contemporary with the composition of epic, but then also a lot of lyric poets that we have from archaic Greece are a little bit later than the Homeric poems. So it seemed like you were describing, yeah, and, and what I was hearing Nietzsche talk about in that essay was storytellers that would be talking, well, as you say, of course, this the vocabulary they used, the meter that they used, it certainly did not sound like ordinary Greek speech of any period, but over and above that, that it was delivered in a song-like manner. And and there are various poets in the story here, as you tell it, that are delivering these songs, as they describe them, that are giving the story of, you know, what happened to Agamemnon or what happened in the wooden horse or whatever. And it's, I'm at least projecting on it something like, that's almost like Gregorian monks chanting, that kind of song-like. Yes. Yes. So after the Homeric poems were composed, then sections of them were performed by people who are known as rhapsodes. And they definitely did have musical accompaniment. So I think one can imagine, you know, somebody strumming along while performing the Homeric poems, for sure. I mean, I guess one could strum along, one could play a guitar while reading my translation. It would be perfectly possible to do that or beat a drum because the rhythm is there. But I'm, I'm not sure also that, I mean, I guess this gets to the questions of how much cultural translation can you make? I hope that my translation becomes an audiobook, and I hope that, that it reads aloud well in that particular oral performance context. We don't have a culture whereby people normally listen to poetry being performed out loud with musical accompaniment. So in order to create a translation that was functional for contexts that people do actually experience poetry, I didn't feel that I needed to compose the melody as well. I mean, I think the fact that it has a rhythm 
if somebody wants to compose a melody, they could do it. <laughs> I didn't think that was actually my job. No, certainly. But am I, am I right in my guessing that the original performers of this back in the day would be doing something that would sound, if not as stupid as da dun da dun da dun da you know, but, but that was, would hit you over the head in that way and sound highly unnatural and song-like? I think it's very debatable because, of course, they didn't have lovely recording equipment like you guys have <laughs> back in the day. Um, so there have been actually fairly recent attempts to reconstruct ancient Greek music. And it sounds interesting and alien and weird because, of course, the whole harmonic scale is different from the music that we're more used to. I mean, I, I don't think there's a way to prove how exactly would they have emphasized sense versus meter. What kind of balance would there have been between bringing out the meter and bringing out the sense? And one thing just to know is that all Greco-Roman verse, including Homer, is quantitative as opposed to stress-based, such that in a way it's easier to fit it to the bars of music. Because whereas if you are working within an English stress-based meter, it's not about how long the syllables are, such that it doesn't necessarily correspond to how long are you playing that note for. Whereas in the Greek meter, it, it corresponds to longs and shorts. So I think it's easier to imagine that being a musical form already. Could we hear what the Greek sounds like in dactylic hexameter and... Andra moi ennepe musa polutropon hosmala polla plankthe epi troia sieron taliathrone persen. It's just the first two lines. Should I go on? No, that's great. That's, so that's, I was thinking about that as you guys were talking about this. Just, yeah, it would be nice to hear the sound. And it, it's an interesting, so Dylan and I have had some Greek. You spent a lot more time with it than I did, though, Wes. I did, but a long time ago. So <laughs> to go remind myself about what, dactylic hexameter sounded like and it's more of a there's kind of a waltz like quality to it because of the three beats i guess per foot is that the way you would say it exactly so, yes. so, so a dactyl that, is a finger so of course like a finger it has three joints long and then two short ah. i think at least to our ear no matter how naturally you speak it that waltz like quality gives it a sing-songy kind of feel i don't know that was my impression coming back to it greek tragedy greek drama was composed in iambic as opposed to dactylic and it was said in antiquity that iambic sounded more like speech than dactylic hexameter does. It was perceived that iambic was more speaky and dactylic was more funny, waltzy. Let's maybe, before we launch right into the content here, kind of go around the table and get some issues out that were concerning us as we were approaching this. So you know, this is a philosophy podcast. I was, of course, going into this thinking about the Nietzsche essay and other things where, you know, the ethical status of the heroes involved. And this translation, you have a really great 80-page introduction that goes through quite a lot of the social-slash-ethical themes that come up here of the treatment of slaves, what is the status of women here, this ethic of hospitality, which is, since you had pointed it out in the intro, they're really crazily insistent on, it seems like every couple pages, it's, are you treating this guest with appropriate hospitality? You know, it's like that's the source of almost every conflict in the book. Yes. Absolutely. It's what it's all about. Senia, the proper treatment of strangers or foreigners or guests, the relationships between hosts and guests, central to the poem. There are a number of ethical issues like that that jumped out. And then I know we also wanted to talk about just philosophical issues involved in translation. And some of those in your intro, you directly relate to the social issues that in past translations, they might have referred to the slaves as a maid or something. And that sort of sugarcoats it, especially in really problematic parts of it, like at the end where Odysseus has come back and already killed the suitors that were in his house eating all his meat. And the question comes, what do we do with the servants? 
of Odysseus who were not sufficiently faithful, who took the side of the suitors who slept with them. And so you mentioned, even as a translation issue, how you describe the fact that Odysseus had his son go and kill them. And, how, you know, do you call it piteous? Do you call them sluts? Like, do you, how, what, what words you use in describing that scene sets up, in part, the ethical tone, that there's, by translating it a certain way, you're making ethical claims about the subject matter and kind of putting yourself on the side of the characters or judging the characters or trying to be neutral about the ethical status of what they're doing. Yep, absolutely. Mark, I think that you summed up a number of issues that were on my mind. I guess this is probably the fourth time I've read it. I haven't done exhaustive work. I'm looking through different translations or anything like that. But I'd like to make sure we get to talking about his complicatedness. One of the reasons I wanted to read this one was actually having read an interview with Emily talking about the translation of one of the words in the first line of the poem. Uh, I think it's polutrophon, which she translates as complicated. And I think we could spend a lot of time talking about the kind of complicated character that Odysseus is as being a hero and being a liar and being a trickster and being an adapter and demanding faithfulness, but also arguably being unfaithful, himself getting home, but in some ways leading all of his men to their death. And <laughs> I think that's what I would want to start with as well. He's an unusual hero, I think. For us, one layer of that unusualness is just the fact that he's running around engaged in a bunch of sociopathic behavior <laughs> and casually mentioning murdering whole towns and like the Kikones. And the other is just he's the smart guy. He's the cerebral character. He's the clever one and the deceitful one or the, or the one who can use disguises and trickery. And in most of our, the kind of cultural tropes we're used to the smart guy, the clever one, is usually set off from the people who are engaged, the brawn. You know, the brains and the brawn are two different kinds of characters. And so to have them in one person is also really interesting, right? So if this were a mob movie, he'd be the accountant or something like that. And he wouldn't be doing anything violent per se. So yeah, it's that that's the other layer to this that I find really interesting is this weird hybrid character that to me reflects... I don't know, something's going on. There's a reflection here about heroism and sort of tensions between, well, let me just leave it there and we can talk. But that's the interesting part to me to begin with, this hybrid character. So, Emily, before you start trying to just answer all those as questions, maybe let's use this opportunity to, I know you've written other books of original philosophy that you're not just a translator. What are some sort of philosophical issues that you had in mind, both as you were going through this and now, if you're going to do future work in here? What are some of the questions that you want to tease out philosophically from this text? I guess the ethics of how to treat people who are totally different from yourself and the ethics of living in a multicultural or globalizing society. And this is a poem that's about those questions and about the ethics of claiming a home for oneself or claiming any kind of property for oneself. Does it always involve taking it from somebody else? I wrote a book about the representations of the death of Socrates, and I sort of see the complexity of Odysseus's character, his multifacetedness, and also his willingness to outwit everybody, to be smarter than everybody. There's this continuity between, between Socrates and Odysseus, and that they're both trying to be smarter than everybody else in their society. And obviously in Plato, we have this anxiety about what kind of cleverness is it? Is Sophia a totally different kind of cleverness from the Odyssean Mertis capacity to be smarter in a way that might not be moral? Which I think, I think is also related to some of the questions I was interested in in writing and translating Seneca as well. This, what's the relationship between wisdom and behavior, between the intellect and how you treat other people in a community? 
Right. We spent a lot of time talking about Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, going through his different names for the faculties involved in intelligence or virtue between cleverness and knowing you know, some, some of these faculties of intelligence sort of had values built into them and some of them didn't. And at least the way Nietzsche describes this progression from Homeric times to Aristotle is that there wasn't really the subtlety back in Homeric times that the picture of this blonde beast or, you know, that there was something kind of stupid about their virtue. Now that we're actually looking at Odysseus here, I think there's probably a lot more subtlety both in Odysseus's behavior and his assessment of his own behavior and in the way that Homer is describing it so that it's not just completely amoral. It's not just merely that Odysseus is wise and clever and famous and therefore everything he does is right by definition, which seems to be how Nietzsche describes it. But there still is obviously quite a lot of evolution between this time, again, around three or four centuries before Plato and Aristotle, Yes, exactly. So yes. I, mean, I would hesitate to say evolution because that's just, it was teleological and of course it was getting better and better and more and more towards truth. I, mean, I just don't think that's true. I mean, I guess I would definitely say that I think Nietzsche underestimates the sort of subtlety and yes, complexity of Homeric depictions of intelligence and its relationship to ethics and choice. I mean, also that there are multiple different models for how intelligence works, even in Homer. It's not that there's just one idea about this is how to be smart. It is his way of being smart. It's not the same as Penelope's way of being smart, not the same as Palinocalypso or Athena's ways of being smart either. We have multiple different smart characters here who are smart in different ways. But they're invited you know, to ask questions about how does their smartness relate to their claims towards decare or justice or payback when they make those claims? And what kinds of investment does Zeus have in justice in a moral sense as opposed to justice in the sense that things balance out somehow and the gods end up getting what they want, which is not exactly justice, although I might say, not in a platonic sense. Maybe one cube with something like the brains versus brawn that uh, Wes brought up that it seemed a bit unusual in Odysseus's case that he is a great fighter, but it seems like that's in contrast to someone like Achilles or Ajax or other heroes who are sort of more straightforwardly, I'm going to go out into the middle of the field and overwhelm you with brute force. Whereas Odysseus is the guy who comes up with the Trojan horse, and he's the guy who sneaks into the dining hall as a beggar and gets everybody to lock all the doors, and then he slaughters you. <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of debate in the 5th century, uh, century Athens about what's the best way to achieve things. And there's usually the tripartite of you either do it by force or persuasion or guile. So force mm -hmm. and deceit are usually presented as total opposites. But of course, Odysseus goes for both force and deceit. And there's definitely a, a contrast which is drawn explicitly in both the Iliad and the Odyssey between Odysseus and Achilles, between the straight shooter who runs fast in a single direction who says, I hate like Hell's Gate, the man who says one thing and has another thing in his heart. Of course, that's the way of saying, I hate Odysseus, because he's, he's always hiding another thing in his heart and always boasting about the fact that he's always got something else, some other scheme that he's not going to let on. He's got some other identity. And yet, as you say, this was a repeated trope of both among the Phaeacians when he's dressed as an old beggar, but then all of a sudden, yes, he can actually win all the athletic games. And then once he gets back to Ithaca, he's dressed as a homeless old migrant beggar. But then once he strips off the rags, yes, he can slaughter everybody. And he's actually stronger than everyone, as well as smarter than everyone. 
So I think the problem is sort of playing around with was it what are the expectations you have of the smart guy who's going undercover? You think he's going to be the spy who's able to whip people by his silver tongue, but in fact, it's also that he's stronger and he, he can string the bow. Um, so and people often suggest that the Iliad and the Odyssey are in some way in competition with each other. There's an implicit competition between these two central heroes and also an implicit competition between two modes of being a hero. Is it better to just be the straight-up hero who can run fast and kill a lot of people? Or is it better to be the kind of hero who could do it all, who could be multifaceted in this way? I mean, I guess I should also say that, in a way, the sharp dichotomy between Achilles and Odysseus, sometimes I think it, it doesn't cash out everything that there is in Achilles, because, of course, Achilles is also self-conscious, and he's the one who's able to articulate, this is the problem with the code of honor that I'm tied up in. So he's, he's thoughtful, too. He's presented as playing the liar and being a poet figure as well. But it's definitely a different kind of thoughtfulness. There's a lot of cheerleading in the text of how smart Odysseus is. It seems like the text is also aware of at least a couple of significantly foolish things that he does. Like, you know, a lot of the trouble that he has on his way back from the Trojan War as he's stopping off at various places. And some of the people there are not so... Uh, generous. Some of the people are not so hospitable, as we were saying, and even though occasionally he'll, even when he's in Ithaca, he'll dress up in some way, maybe he has help from a god, maybe he doesn't, he'll sneak, he'll lie, he'll send out some spies to check things out, but yet there are significant times where he doesn't do that and ends up having 90% of his men killed off because he didn't take these Let's send one rowboat to check out whether they're man-eating cannibals on the island rather than having every ship except my ship, Odysseus's ship, go into the harbor and just say, hey, what's up? And then they all get eaten. They all get eaten. Seems- so the, so the 90% that happens with the Lystragonians. There are two sets of human-eating cannibals. There are the Lystragonians who eat most of them, but then there's also the Cyclops. And in the case of Polyphemus, the Cyclops, Odysseus is the one who insists against the pleas of his men that they are going to go into the cave and they are going to start taking his stuff and they are going to invade his hospitality and invade his space. I think you can sort of see the conflict between Odysseus, the military man, who absolutely always wants to get the glory and also get the loot, and Odysseus, the smart guy who might hold back. Yeah, and you know, there are these times where, even aside from the Polyphemus episode, where they talk about essentially looting different communities along the way, which doesn't seem like a very hospitable activity. But in the case of Polyphemus, I, there's a kind of justification given to it of him not being civilized. And I wonder how that works into the claims of being able to enjoy the respect of hospitality, of what kind of people you have to be or what kind of community do you have to be part of to both have that expected of you on either side. You know, the Cyclops, they're not actually tilling the land and stuff like that, right? They're not partaking in, in agriculture and sort of bringing added value, right? Right. And when Odysseus first sees the Cyclops Island, he's looking out and seeing this would be a great place to colonize. There must be yeah. only native peoples here, so we could go and exploit that. I, mean, I think one of the things that to me is so interesting about Book Nine of the Odyssey is how it's told by Odysseus himself, unlike most of the poem. And he's definitely an unreliable narrator in that we have these contradictory claims that are being made about, I guess the crucial terms are themis, like lawful custom. Um, Odysseus says these people don't have themis, but then we're also told themistue, he uses themis to do his orderly chores. He has a kind of order. It's a different kind of order. And Odysseus also claims that the 
Kuklapes, the Cyclopes, are godless. They're atheos. Then we also are told that the Cyclops is the son of Poseidon, and the book ends with him praying to the god who's going to support his desire for endless revenge. So I think it's, it's not that the poem as a whole is saying if a culture is different from the culture of Western Greece, then it's totally legitimate to go in and take their stuff and mutilate them. The poem is sort of saying that's what Odysseus is trying to grasp onto as a way of justifying some of his banditry. And there are things that point against that as well. I was going to ask Wes, actually, because this part of the conversation is making me think about the very first thing he said, which was that he's a sociopath. <laughs> or engages in a lot of sociopathic behavior. <laughs> yeah. And so I was wondering about that in the context of what we were just talking about, about the way you would interpret is that related to how he interprets his interactions with people like the Cyclops, Polyphemus, and understanding them as not being civilized versus his interactions with the Phaeacians and, and understanding them as being civilized, even though he's tricking them both? Yeah, I think, Emily, you, in your introduction, I think you say the poem's central subject is strangeness versus familiarity. So when he's in the cave of Polyphemus, he's administering some tests, right? He comes asking for gifts. You know, are you really civilized? Are you going to give me some gifts? Are you going to welcome a stranger? Which is not something he did with, how do you pronounce it, the Phaeacians? Um, are you talking about the Kikones before earlier in Book 9? No, I'm with Alcinous and... Alcinous, yes. And Nausicaa, yes. Okay. So he doesn't administer those tests. He's more of a supplicant in those cases. He walks into this situation, I think ex expecting Polyphemus to fail his test so that he can basically slaughter him and do what he wants with him. He needs some sort of pretext, and so that's why he's asking for gifts. Um, so the line between sociopathic behavior and non-sociopathic behavior seems in, in some ways to have to do with people being strangers in some sense, but on the other hand, strangers are beloved of Zeus, and you have to lavish them with gifts and treat them well. And so I don't know what to do with that. What does Odysseus expect to get out of the interaction with Polyphemus? Is it that he's kind of being a bully and going to extract out, revealing that he is inhospitable? Yeah, he gets a lot of sheep and, and a lot of good loot out of it. And he gets the sheep, the goats, and he also gets the glory, right? I mean, he keeps, even though he's already got the sheep and goats by the end and they're trying to escape, he can't leave until he's got the glory, too. He wants to humiliate his victim and make sure that the victim has acknowledged his total superiority. So it's not just the loot. Whereas I think but here in his traces, the slippage between the culture, whom you treat by the rules of warfare, regardless of whether there's been any declaration of war. So he just invades the Sikones, kills the men, enslaves the women, takes all the stuff. There's no interaction such that the Sikones then have to say, you're so amazing, you're so smart. Whereas then once he gets to the next island with Polyphemus, he adds in the extra layer of humiliation slash honor as well. And it seems that the poem is sort of engaged with how does Xenia fit into that? Is Xenia one of these ways whereby we, we win the battle of hearts and minds in some way as well? Or we show our ideological or social superiority in this completely inconsistent way by making the victims say that we were the best. Well, and in fact, that's the origin of his, I mean, in some ways it's his great debacle, right? That's what infuriates Poseidon against him and throws him on a major part of his, his wandering is him revealing himself as being the superior one to Polyphemus. Yes, or claiming to be the superior one to Polyphemus. Claiming to have been the superior one, yes. So did Polyphemus tell him that he was the son of Poseidon? At the end, he prays to Poseidon, right? 
But Odysseus didn't know that he was revealing himself to the son of Poseidon, who could then wreck his ship. Like, was he that dumb, is my question. When he first walks in, he doesn't know. Yeah, but he had been hiding himself beforehand. He had called himself No Man rather than Odysseus, and he was playing a joke on Polyphemus. And then when they're sailing away, he reveals his actual name. Does he know that Polyphemus is the son of Poseidon when he reveals his name? But, but if he only says that at the end. I mean, I guess just to pick up on, we were talking before about um, what's the ethics of, of cleverness. And I think it's important just to notice that in this sequence in Book 9, there's this punning not just on nobody. He says his name is nobody. He says his name is Mertis or Utis. Mertis is also the word for cunning intelligence. It's the quality that is allegorized as the mother of Athena. So I think yeah. this whole episode is sort of defining what is cunning intelligence and how ambivalent do we feel about it. It's about pretending to be nobody by your cunning intelligence. By your metis, you are metis. But that's then in contrast with the desire to be somebody. So did you have the sense that the audience at the time, as far as we could possibly figure this out, would be reflecting on, you know, would be sort of putting themselves superior to Odysseus and thinking about, is Odysseus really being clever here? Or is Odysseus just being presented as a hero? And that's how the audience probably would be taking it and the storyteller and they'd just be cheering him on and they're more or less agreeing and in awe of this. Uh, you know, if anything, if he does something that seems wretched, it's because he's so godlike that he can get away with that and we can't. Well, so this is a literary text where we have no contemporary reception. Right? We have no account from a listener in the eighth, late 8th century saying, I really did like Odysseus in that story. <laughs> <laughs> so what we have is the text. And as I'm saying, what the text shows us is a lot of nuanced complexity and ambivalence about the focalization and about the ways that Odysseus is presented as multifaceted and contradictory. We have then much later classical receptions such as the hostility that's shown towards Odysseus, the character, both in fifth century drama and then later in Plato. But that's a totally different cultural context. I think if we just look at the text of Homer, when one thing just about translation, I just was looking this morning at different translations of Book Nine in English. And it's striking to me how many of them try to sort of grapple with what we as a modern reader might want the text to be saying. We might want it to be much clearer that Polyphemus is a monster, and that's why he has to get blinded, because the good guy, the human, has to find the monster. And uh, several of, tra- of the translations I looked at, such as the Lombardo one and the Robert Fagel's one, they have the men of Odysseus say, don't vile up this beast and use language which suggests he's totally inhuman, he's not a person. But the Greek says he's an agrios aner, he's a human being. It's the same word, andra, that's used of Odysseus in the first line. So I think the poem is not saying he's othered to the extent that it obviously justifies everything that happens to him. Very ambivalent about that. And I, I wanted to make sure that in my version of it, I wasn't simplifying in that way and suggesting I already know exactly what every reader would have thought about it and I can change the text's ethical complexity to make it ethically simple. And then you don't have to worry so much. You know, I don't think that was my job. I think you should worry. Yeah, no, I was thinking, as you say, since we don't know what the contemporaries thought about this, you'd have to look to keys in the style of the narrative itself. Does it sound like the narrator is scorning Odysseus, laughing at Odysseus, something like that, particularly because, as we haven't really said here, that Homer is probably not a single person, that the Iliad and the Odyssey don't look like they were written by the same person, and the Odyssey itself, as you say, there are 
words from different periods, words from different regions. So it looks like this was an oral tradition that was kind of patched together at some point. So there are a number of storytellers, which means that, you know, like a folk song, the pieces of this most likely evolved over time. And that would be the place if individual storytellers were adding things, changing words, where I would think that you would get, you know, however the original author of the particular section, the story of Polyphemus might have felt about Odysseus's actions that inevitably as this was performed for people, then it would get tweaked. You know, again, this is just speculation, but tweaked maybe to tell the audience how to feel more obviously, right? Even if an individual author is being, as you have been in, in your translation, I think in parts, carefully neutral, not telling, like, yes, this is just weird. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about this. But if you picture this being presented in taverns and halls, you know, as is presented in the story itself, where the various poets are talking to the nobility and, and laying out parts of the story, then you can imagine that the emotional sheen that would be on the individual words would be something that would get tweaked over time so that you could tell probably how the Greeks of the time would have felt about what they were hearing. I think there's a few things to tease out there. One is that both poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, they may have been composed by the same people. We don't know that. They're based on an oral tradition. That doesn't mean that what was composed in the late 8th or early 7th century was an oral tradition. It was based on an oral tradition and then put together. And it seems to me that both these poems are very coherent works of literary art. And it seems extremely speculative and, to me, dubious to think well, when the rhapsodes performed it, they would have made it simpler, because, of course, we think the Greeks would have wanted things to be simple and to make sense ethically. And I actually don't think that's true. I think it's quite likely that people in archaic Greece embraced these disturbing, interesting, fascinatingly complex stories which don't necessarily have a absolutely clear black and white ethics to them. So I guess also just about the Homeric question. So the Homeric question is what people call this set of questions about how did we get from a centuries-long oral tradition during so the, the centuries during which Greece didn't have any capacity to read or write. In the 8th century, the Greeks invented the alphabet by putting vowels into the Phoenician syllabary. And it's at that period when Greece became literate that these poems were composed. We don't know if it was a single oral poet who became literate or if it was oral poet or poet working with scribes. We don't know any of that. But Homer was spoken of in antiquity as the poet, the maker. So poetas, poet means maker, which is a distinct role from the aioidos. In the Odyssey, we get several aioidoi, such as Demodocus in the palace of Alcinous, the Phaeacians, or Phamius on Ithaca. So aioidos is a different word from poet. It's just somebody who's orally composing based on the tradition, who doesn't know how to read or write. And a rhapsode is a different thing. Again, that's somebody who was using the written text of Homer and then learning it by heart and performing based on the actual script. So both of those roles were imagined in antiquity as different from what Homer did. Homer did making. He made something that is the written text of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And of course, you're, you're right, we don't know if it was the same person or if it was one people or many people who did that making. But it, it wasn't imagined as the same thing as just riffing orally. It was a different thing based on the centuries of riffing orally. So Homer is probably not, as is often depicted, blind, right? When it was put together as a full work, it was written. So presumably, he was not writing in Braille, in ancient Greek Braille. It could have been. I mean, or if there was a Homer, it could have been. But the idea that he's the blind man from Chios comes from a later poem, the Homeric hymn to Apollo. And 
presumably that line was put in there by the people of Chios who wanted Homer to come from Chios. The tradition of Homer being blind is, of course, also related to particular ways of imagining Homer is inspired by the gods, therefore is not looking at the visible world, but at the world of divine inspiration. I mean, it's perfectly possible that it was a blind poet who had a scribe working with him or her. That's not an impossible scenario. It's just we have no idea. So with this talk of, I feel like going back to the subject of uh, Odysseus's recklessness, there's a feeling for me that maybe he's not as eager to get home as he likes to think, and that the recklessness is sort of a delaying tactic, and that that may have something to do with having been away for so long and having been transformed by that. So he's supremely adaptable, but having been away to war for 10 years and having lived that way, the thought of going home, of reintegrating, so this is sort of a a problem we're all aware of when people are in extraordinary situations and they have to return to some domestic scene or to everyday life, to what is regular, that means changing themselves again. I mean, you see some of this even in the interaction between Penelope and Odysseus when he gets home, where they really can't reunite until they've sufficiently affected each other to become, you know, Odysseus isn't the Odysseus that Penelope knew when he gets home, not just in the sense that his exterior form has been transformed, but in the sense that he's no longer someone who's been shaped by her influences or she hasn't been around those influences for very long. So in, in a way he has to be reformed by interaction with her before he can become the Odysseus and reveal himself to her. So there's that interesting dynamic that I think also goes both ways. So I that I agree with any of that. I mean, it seems to me that yeah. Penelope insists that he is the same. He's always been abandoning her and he's doing the same thing. He looks exactly the same as he always did. And that she's sort of testing to show that he will do what he always does, which is boast about his own construction of the bed, boast about what he could do, his own achievements. And the scene, of course, shows this huge gap between them, even at the moment of recognition, that she riles him up to be angry with him. And that shows that there's at least one place that she can hurt him, but that's the only place that she can hurt him. It's not clear to me that it shows he's totally different from the lovely domestic Odysseus that doesn't exist anywhere in the Homeric tradition. I mean, that seems to be importing something that the poem doesn't show. Not the lovely, I didn't mean to imply that there's a lovely domestic Odysseus. Just that who he is is in some ways, so on the one hand, it, you know, we may be, even if we are supremely adaptable, even if we have the ability to be whoever we want in disguise or in some other way, there's some sense in which we are shaped enough by our circumstances that there's an element of our identity that's not up to us. So when he gets back to Ithaca, in the literal manifest level of the story, right, he doesn't recognize it because Athena has shrouded it in mist or something like that. But at a deeper level, if you came back from a 10 years of war and then 10 years of adventure, home would be unrecognizable in some sense to you. And then making home home would be a task. That would be a project. And the people who were once familiar to you, making them same again as opposed to strange and other, I think that would be a task also. So maybe I'm reading into it a little bit for Odysseus, but I think just the way it's structured, it gives me the suspicion that there's part of him that doesn't really want to go home. He's engaged in delaying tactics because home is no longer home exactly. And to go home will be to subject himself to some sort of change, 
which is no longer under his control. It's not him just pretending to be something, but him becoming subordinate to those forces that will make him the kind of person he is at home. But not, yeah, definitely not to say that he's some idealized <laughs> person in that context, but yeah. Well, I mean, this is, I guess, another philosophically interesting question that the poem raises, which is how much can we be who we will to be? I mean, can we be mm-hmm. a superman or a you know, superwoman? Can we be the product of our own will identity? And it seems to me that the fantasy, that Odysseus's fantasy, which is enabled by Athena, is that, yes, he can be who he wants to be. He can change time. He can stop time such that he looks exactly the same as he did 20 years ago. And even though he has a son who's almost grown up and a father, he can still have exactly the same social position in his household rather than letting the son take over. It's going to be like this forever. He's always the paterfamilias. He's always the dominant husband. He's always in control of everything. Whereas Penelope is constantly saying, 20 years have passed, my bed is stained with tears, my face is stained with tears, I don't always have a choice, the suitors are forcing me to do something, there's a limit to how much she can, however much she wants something to happen, she doesn't get to have what she wants or even be who she wants. The question of moral luck, which is also an interesting question about, are there cases where the precariousness of being defined by social circumstance and forcing might make it impossible for her to choose to be her destiny? Whereas for him, the poem seems to invite us to think somehow or other this fantasy makes sense for him because he's so exceptional and he has the right goddess. I mean, I guess also just picking up on the Tennysonian question. Tennyson's poem that imagines Odysseus getting so bored sitting at home in Ithaca, and it's of course modelled on Tennyson's own life, but it's a way of reading the poem that it seems to hero is never going to be satisfied with a particular type of being at home, if being at home means rest and no further change. So I think the poem is also insisting on that by asking the question, when does the nostos happen? When does the homecoming happen? Mm-hmm. It gets back to Ithaca in the middle of the poem, not at the end of the poem. At each moment when he has to reforge or recreate a new relationship, that's another element in the nostos, element in the homecoming. He reforges his relationship with his slaves, with his son, with his dog, who then instantly dies, with his wife, his father. Each of those moments is a moment in the homecoming. But then there's also the further moments in the homecoming where we leave him at the end of book 24 is that he's slaughtering all the people of Ithaca. And in a way, maybe that's the homecoming too. Right? That's the moment where he comes back to his identity as a warrior as well. So it seems if each of his different identities as well as different relationships requires a different moment of coming home. So home is in these multiple different ways. It's not just a single place or a single relationship. And I guess also just coming back to the question of why does he come home? What, what's, what's there for him? The choice of Odysseus to leave Calypso, I think, is pretty fascinating. Right. It's a really right. difficult kind of choice because, of course, when you think it, it should be difficult because there he has it so good. He has a kind of home, which is a stable home, but it's a home where he's never going to get the kind of glory that he can get in Ithaca and the kind of capacity for changing things and being powerful because it's always going to be the same. He's always going to be in hiding. He's going to be immortal but she's always going to be the goddess and he's just going to be some guy and doesn't he actually change his mind there's a period of time where it seems like he's with calypso for a good long time and he's just rocking it he's just this is great and then he starts becoming homesick she no longer pleased him not told that she never pleased him it's no longer so we right. know exactly how long was it good for but probably for a while <laughs> it was good right <laughs> yeah. you just said she no longer pleased him And is that what amounts to him becoming homesick and wanting to leave? Is that he's, uh, you know, many faceted and complicated and he just got tired of Calypso, the goddess, and decided, you know what, I need to get back home? 
or well, I think it's interesting that we're not told, right? I mean, when yeah. the, the poem disguises its answers to many things that we want to ask, and we're definitely not told explicitly. He left the island because he loved his wife so much. He left the island because he got bored in bed. He got, left the island because he just wanted some more opportunities to kill people. I mean, we're not, we're not told any of the answers to any of these questions. I mean, it seems to me that we are sort of shown that the story can't happen unless he leaves. That in, unless he leaves this island, he can't be an epic protagonist. Mm. So it's like the choice of Achilles, which is also a choice to accept mortality as the price for being in an epic poem. In order for things to happen, for there to be a plot, these characters have to leave the safe space in which they're not going to die instantly and go into danger and into a world where they, they are going to both cause death and die. Well, you draw this contrast in your introduction. If he's looking for some sort of permanence, there's the permanence of being immortal and being taken care of by Calypso for the rest of his life, but also being essentially powerless and not head of a household. And then there's the permanence in the sense of having status and being king, being head of a household, and having that sort of power. And so it's not unusual, right, that people will choose status and power above even their own well-being if we're thinking of immortality and health that Calypso can provide as a sort of well-being. Getting back to our earlier discussion about Polyphemus, it's the choice between being nobody and being somebody. And even if it's very high risk, Odysseus wants to be somebody. He could be safer being nobody. And he can stand being nobody for a long time, longer than most people. That's part of what his much enduringness is, is that he can stand being in disguise in a way that Achilles can't. But he can't stick it out forever. He wants to be somebody. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that way, the difference between wanting to be somebody versus being nobody. Because I think that extrapolates across a large variety of the interactions. You know, he's hidden in various ways, being a, a trickster, whether it's with the Phaeacians or when it's, he comes home or when it's, he's with Polyphemus. But eventually he always reveals who he is, that he is the great Odysseus. And that's central to those interactions. It is. And it's central even to the great moment when we're told the insert narrative of how did he get his name? And we have the great story of the boar hunt, that he, the boar is in hiding and eventually comes out of its lair. And when the boar comes out, it wounds Odysseus on his leg. And that story of the wounding, which brings the scar, which is where the nurse slave, Eurycleia, remembers how he got his name in the first place from his grandfather, Ortilicus, the lord of cheating and lying. So there's this association between he's the one who can bear both being hidden and being hated in ways that most human beings can't bear being hidden or being hated as much as Odysseus can. But he's also ultimately going to be at the forefront and want to be visible. All right, that sounds like a good way to wrap up our first half. Folks can hear the whole discussion, including what we're about to do in just a few minutes ourselves right now by becoming Partially Examined Life citizens at partiallyexaminedlife.com or just check your feed next week and you'll hear it then. Thanks. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.